Good morning. It is great to see you here this morning. And as always, we're very thankful for your presence and thankful to the God of heaven who's allowed us to be together another, another Sunday and to give him the praise and glory he is due. A word or two before we get started in the sermon this morning, and that is uh, to those who are members here at Westside. Let me just say this relative to the listening of sermons, because we're going to talk about sermons and we're going to talk about how to listen a little later. But I just want to say that the things preached are not intended to be heard as if they are a threat to your salvation. And sometimes you can get accustomed to hearing sermons like every week I come, there's something else I'm failing at. Every week I come, there's something else I need to do. And every week I come, then I got to get better at that, and that way I'll be saved. That's really not the way to listen to the sermons. If you were here Wednesday night, we talked about grace, we talked about faith, we talked about justification. And so if you are a member of the body, and especially the members who assemble here, then you are saved. And as a result of that, the motivation is to live holy because you're saved, not in order to get saved. I say that because I know the hearts of God's people, and God's people will always try, and they will try harder, and they will interpret the sermon as, that's one more area I'm failing in. Uh, that's just typically the goodness of God's people with regards to their heart. It's tender, it's soft, it's always striving, and I just want you to know that the, the motivation is start saved as you are, and now if you need make changes where you are, then do that as motivating with regards to because I'm saved, I'm going to strive to be like Jesus. Are you, are you with me here? And that's the introduction to the introduction to the introduction. <laughs> so let's get to the introduction then. The way people live their lives, and it seems that this is the case just almost every day, it seems that the Paul sermon, the one we'll talk about today, really needs to be heard by everybody. For it concerns the three things that are most critical to life. One, the way people often mistreat each other. At home, in life, marriages, parenting, dating, people just mistreat each other. Traffic, commutes, maybe you've seen it. Public places, restaurants, stores. You ever seen people get bad service or what they perceive to be bad service? They didn't get what they wanted on time. Have you noticed how they treat the people? Coworkers, unkind, bullies, gossips. It just seems to be an okay thing for people to mistreat each other. The second thing is often the way they treat themselves. That is, they make allowances for their bad behavior. They cut in front of other people take advantage of other people for selfish gain. They step on, lie to, deceive, scam, and then they defend it. They say things like, well, I'm just an alpha. I have a type A personality. They even talk about the other people. Well, they were dumb. They were weak. They deserved it. Their wrong isn't even wrong at all. Sometimes they say, I'm just doing it first. Everyday life seems to be lived this way. The same people often see no wrong with the way they're living. And in their mind, karma will sort it out. And this seems to be the way of life. Dog eat dog, get what you can, do it to them before they do it to you. It's this that makes Paul's sermon the one that everyone should hear. The fact is, Paul preached many great sermons. Well, that's just the truth. 
And it could be argued that every one of them needs to be heard, and I certainly wouldn't dispute that. If you have your Bibles, you'll know just a few of them with me. Beginning in Acts chapter 13, Paul starts preaching. And there's a great thing that's done here as Paul goes into the synagogues, which was his, his custom. That's what he did. He'd go in the synagogue, and he'd reason out of the Scriptures, and he'd reason them to the Christ. And in Acts chapter 13 and verse 15, the Bible says, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. This is a beautiful scene, one that every preacher would desire. There's a break in the proceedings, and then the official says, Preacher, you got anything to say? The floor is yours. And Paul said, I'll take it. And so if you'll start reading from verse 16, Paul stood up, motioning with his hands, men of Israel, and he started preaching. And oh, what a sermon. You should read Acts chapter 13. It's a great sermon. Reads a lot like Stephen's in Acts chapter 7, chronicling the history of Israel from the Old Testament forward and bringing them to the Christ. It is a great sermon. If you turn to Acts chapter 14, Paul preaches again. He heals an individual on this occasion, and there is a gathering of people, and they're saying some things about he and Barnabas, and Paul stops, and then he teaches them from about verse 9, verse number 18. In chapter 15, Paul is in the council. He's among them. There's Peter, there's James, there's the elders. Paul is among the group, and why they're there is to talk about the matter of circumcision and individuals who are telling the Gentile brethren that unless you're circumcised after the manner of Moses, you can't be saved. Paul is among the group of individuals in that meeting addressing that issue, and he is defending the faith and telling them why they're wrong to teach such a thing. If you look at Acts chapter 16, verses 14 to 18, he is there preaching to Lydia the seller of purple, and she obeys the gospel. Also in Acts chapter 16, he's imprisoned for casting out a demon uh, in verse number 16 following, and uh, the young maid brought her master's uh, gain by that and divination, and he cast the spirit out, and he's arrested for that. In prison, verse 25, about midnight, he's singing and praying, and then there's an earthquake, the jails are open, and the very jailer who jailed him Paul preaches to him. This goes on, Acts chapter 17, talk about another great sermon. You could read the one on Mars Hill to the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, beginning in about verse 22, and what a sermon. God that made the world and all things that are therein. And he talks about God, he talks about God's creation, talks about God's giving of life and all of these things. Then there's Corinth. He leaves there and goes to Corinth in Acts chapter 18 and verse number 1 down to about verse number 10. He preaches to the Corinthians, and many of the Corinthians hear and believe and were baptized, verse number 8. Chapter 19, he's in Ephesus preaching and teaching the gospel, and again having great success in the preaching of that gospel. And there are people burning their books and turning from idolatry. We get to chapter 20, Paul preaching again. Verse number 7 says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul preached. He, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, why did I read that? Well, it's because Paul was a long-winded preacher, too. 
And I just thought you would appreciate that. I don't know when he started, but the text does say he prolonged his speech. He preached still longer. And I hear you right now saying, Eric, preach still longer. I hear it. <laughs> Did I hear it? I didn't hear it. <laughs> Chapter 20, verses 17 to 35, talk about a great discussion. The Apostle Paul calls elders from Ephesus to meet him in Miletus, and he recounts to them his work among them and in that area. If you were to begin at verse 17 and read to the end of the chapter, you will hear Paul say some amazing things about his teaching and about his preaching. He will say, I didn't shun. I didn't hold back anything that was profitable to you. I, shun, I did not shun to preach the whole counsel of God to you. He says that. He says, I taught you publicly and privately. He even says he spent time with them in tears in the preaching and teaching of the gospel. He was sad because he was going to depart. He also talked about the fact that there would come in who would harm the church of our Lord. In chapter 21, Paul is arrested again. In verse number 27, Paul entered the temple. He is arrested there because there were Jews who thought he had taken Gentiles into the temple. He didn't actually do that, but they saw him in the city with Gentiles, and then they saw him in the temple. And so they just put them together and said he took them in. Well, he didn't actually do that, but they arrested him. And they were trying to and going to kill him over that incident, and the Romans heard about it, and they intervened. And so now there's this pull and push literally on Paul. They thought he was going to be ripped apart. The Romans took him and actually rescued him from the mob. And as Paul, in the end of chapter 21, as you began in the chapter 22, as he's in this area and in this place, he's ascending some stairs. And he says to the Roman official, let me talk to them. And the mob is beneath, and he's on the stairs, and then he turns and he begins to talk to them in the Hebrew tongue, the Bible says. And so they began to listen. They went from that raucous mob to now, as he stands and begins to speak to them in the Hebrew tongue, they began to listen. And if you start reading at 22 in verse number 1, Paul begins his sermon he talks again about how he is a Jew born in Sicily, and he, he just keeps on going about his, his work and how God has called him and, and what he—and they listen up until it's over and about verse 21, where he tells them that Jesus sent him to the Gentiles. He said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And verse 22 says they listened up to that point up to that statement. And when he said that, they raised their voices, and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This is what took Paul then away from them, and now he's in being held by the Romans. It's now that they're trying to sort everything out. In this time, and while this is happening, the people who wanted to kill Paul are now plotting about how to do that. And so they're going to go through this thing where they say, you know what, we, we want to kill him, and some take vows, and this is known by Paul's nephew, and he tells them. Eventually what happens is they rescue Paul, and they send him away to Felix. It's here in chapter 24 
where Felix calls those accusers, they come, Paul comes, and Felix waits to hear the case. If you read chapter 24 in the first nine verses, Tertullus, verse number one, he is the one who is opposing Paul, and he begins to make his appeal to Felix. And he tells him of other things that Paul is an instigator, a stirrer up of trouble, and teaching these things that are contrary, and, and he goes on and on and on about Paul. And that takes you down to about verse number nine. Verse number nine is where Paul begins his defense in verse number 10 following. After he hears Tertullus, verse number 10 says, when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. And in verse 10, Paul begins to set forth. Let's just read some of his defense. Verse number 10, the governor nodded for him to speak. Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogue, nor in the city did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But I admit to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believe in everything that is in accordance with the law and the prophets, it's written. And he goes on with this great defense. Paul continues that all the way down to about verse number 20. He says, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Then he does say this, other than for this one statement, which I shouted while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Now, it's interesting, verse 22 opens with the word but, and it says that Felix had some understanding of the way. In fact, he had a more exact knowledge of the way. Please understand, the way is Christianity. It's the way of Jesus Christ. It's who Saul of Tarsus was seeking to persecute and destroy way back in Acts chapters 8 and Acts chapter 9. If he found any of the way, he would arrest them. That's what Paul says. He recounts that. He says, listen, I used to persecute this way. They call it a sect, but it's not a sect. It's what the law and the prophets led us to. It's the way. Felix actually has an knowledge of the way. And so what he says is, he says, when Lysias the commander comes, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders, verse 23, he was kind to Paul. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to keep in custody, be kept in custody and have some freedom, not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. This is the sermon. Because what happens next is Felix will send for Paul, and Paul will be given an opportunity to preach to him. Before we get there, let me just say a word or two about sermons in general. There are several things that should be found in sermons when you hear them. Number one, sermons should be scriptural. In fact, we would urge to be as God would have them, they'd have to be. The Apostle Paul would write himself in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 2, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering doctrine. He goes on to say in that passage, for the time will come when they will not endure sound, healthy teaching, healthy doctrine, sound doctrine. There'll come a time. It's not only that they won't endure it, it's that people will teach error. The Apostle Paul said that as well. 
1 Timothy 4 and verse number 1, Paul wrote, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in a latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Peter said as much, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 1, he said there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. It was happening to the church. Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 6, I marvel that you are so soon removing from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you, and they pervert, twist, rest the gospel. They preach a different gospel, Paul says. It's happening right now. Sermons ought to be, must be, scriptural. Secondly, sermons need to be contextual. I couldn't come up with a better word than that, so let me offer as well appropriate. Maybe timely would be a good one. That is, it needs to deal with what's at hand. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, they were talking about the daily distribution of the goods for the widows. They weren't talking about anything else. They came together for that matter. That's why they came together. The apostle's solution is for that. Same thing in Acts chapter 15, verse number 2 says, they came together concerning this issue. Sermons ought to have some context to the relevant needs of those who are hearing them. They ought to be contextual. They ought to be appropriate. Not here to talk about the weather. Not really here to talk about the sports or anything else. It ought to meet us where we are. Thirdly and fourthly, sermons ought to be pointed and personal. That is, they ought to be directed so that a person could make a decision about the Lord or about their lives. When you read individuals before kings and before audiences, you find those things present. For instance, Moses is before Pharaoh, and what does he say? Let my people go. That's what God said. To whom? You. What do you want me to do? Let my people go. It's pointed and it's personal. You hear Nathan before David, you are the man. It's personal and it's pointed. You've sinned, you're the man. You hear the apostles in Acts chapter 2, preaching to an audience, some of which people who have the blood of Jesus on their hands, and what's the sermon that day? You killed him. God raised him. Repent and be baptized. What do you mean pointed and personal? Now, I point that out because that last part in particular is not always easy. God would say to Jeremiah, don't look at their faces. Don't worry about them. Why not? Because that's what preaching does. You know, I don't preach facing that direction. <laughs> we look at their faces. It's not always easy to be pointed and personal and scriptural and so forth and contextual when people are the audience that you're preaching to. Even the Apostle Paul acknowledged this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and notice what he says. I suppose while we're turning, we should add preaching has never been intended to be only in the building to the saved. It's been intended to be to those in the world. And it still needs to have all of those components. In 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, claiming to you the testimony of God. For I did not, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But look at verse number 3. 
I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You know what the Corinthians were doing? All you got to do is read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, where he says, such were some of you. The apostles in Acts chapter 4 were arrested and then threatened in verse 17. And then they prayed about that. You know, part of their prayer is, look in Acts chapter 4 and listen to part of the prayer. This is Peter and John, two apostles who have been arrested for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now they've been threatened, don't you do this again, verse number 17, and then they go away having been released. Verse number 23, when they had been released, they went to their own company, reported all the chief priests and elders said to them, and when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord, and they began praying. Part of that prayer, slide down to verse number 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur, and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. That last part's not always easy. In Ephesians chapter 6, in verse number 18, Paul says it again with regards to his work. After talking about the sword of the Spirit and all of the armor of God, he says in verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints, and on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I tell you all of that because the Apostle Paul is standing before an elected official. And as it was the case with many in Scripture, they stood before people who could often decide whether or not they would kill them. Jeremiah will be in, in a pit up to his neck and Stephen will be stoned for preaching. And now Paul stands. What would be the sermon that day? What would be the subject matter that day? It would be the sermon that probably everybody in our country and world needs to hear. It's recorded here in Acts chapter 24 and verses 24 and verse 25. Because after Felix allowed Paul to go away and to have friends, he's held in custody. The Bible says, but some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess. And maybe that's why he had a more better understanding of the way. He sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way, for this time, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. The end of verse 24 tells us the first thing that he heard. He heard Paul talk about faith in Christ. That is the most important thing anybody needs in their life. And so that's where he began. In fact, it is the point of preaching. 
If we had to offer up a singular point of preaching, it would be Jesus. Go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. If you preach the gospel, who would you be preaching? You would be preaching faith in Jesus, the necessity to believe in him. In fact, that's what Mark records. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. What did he hear Paul talk about faith in Jesus? What does the world need to hear? Faith in Jesus. The first sermon ever preached. What was it about? Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. You killed him, God raised him, according to the Scriptures. You took him by wicked hands. It was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You killed him, and God raised him. Every message in Acts is about Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Not surprising then that that's where Paul gets to induce faith in his name. Felix heard about faith in Christ Jesus. In fact, everybody in the book of Acts did. They began that way, Acts 2 and verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know, assuredly, God had made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, they're preaching Jesus. In fact, they're arrested. Acts chapter 4 verse 1, the Sadducees are upset. Why? They're preaching the resurrection. They're preaching Jesus. And people are believing it. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he preaches Jesus. Acts chapter 8 and verse number 5, Philip went down to Samaria. You know what he did when he got down there? He preached Christ unto them. Acts chapter 8 and verse 35, he began at the Scripture, the one the eunuch was reading when he met him. Come up into the chariot. Of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or some other man? And beginning at that passage, he preached Jesus to him, Isaiah 53. Acts 9, 10, and 11, what is Peter preaching? He went to Joppa, raised lead. He's preaching Jesus. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11 with Cornelius, Jesus. Acts chapter 13, we just walked from 13 over here to 24. What has Paul been preaching? Jesus. In fact, Paul says, that's why I'm here. Look back at chapter 23 and verse 6. He stands before the council, and this is what he says to the Jewish council. In verse number 5, Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest. That's in response to the high priest telling someone to hit Paul, and Paul saying something about the high priest. And Paul says, I didn't know he was a high priest, for it's written, you should not speak evil of a rule of your people. Verse number 6, the Bible says, but perceiving the one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, and I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. You know what he's doing? That's Jesus. Why is he standing here before Felix? He says the same thing. He says, the only reason I'm here is because of the resurrection. Verse number 20 and verse 20, 21, he says, or else let these men themselves tell you what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement. What's the one statement? I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead. I am on trial before you today. What is it that he talked to Felix about? The end of verse 24 Felix sent for him, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, friends, you are saved. That's not the issue. What does everybody else need to hear? About Jesus, about the very one who saved you. Paul then preached a sermon 
a three-point sermon. It's here in verse 25. What did he talk about? Talk about contextual and scriptural and appropriate and personal and pointed. The first thing the Bible says in verse 25, but as he was discussing righteousness, that's point number one. What's Paul's sermon to Felix? Righteousness, equity, justice. You know this word means integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. It can also mean justification, but I trust that Paul covered that when he talked to him about faith in Christ. Now then, he's talking to him about virtue. He's talking to him about purity of life. He's talking to him about how he treats his fellow man. How did we begin? Everybody seems to be okay with mistreating their fellow man. No, Paul says, listen, he spoke to this man about righteousness. Why? Because all humans are made in the image of God. Because Christ died for all men. Because all men are the same before God. The apostle Peter, if you read Acts chapter 9, you'll hear he and God in a discussion and the sheet is coming down and Peter says at some point to God, no, I, I've, nothing unclean has ever entered into my mouth. And God says to Peter, what I have cleansed, don't you call common. They're not talking about food. They're talking about people. God wants the Gentiles to have the gospel. And the rest of the Jews refuse to take it to him. Having been thus convinced to go, Peter arrives at the home of Cornelius, and the two men meet. And this is Cornelius' reaction to Peter's presence. The Bible says, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped. This is Peter's reaction to that. Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up. I am just a man. What are you saying, Peter? We're the same. Don't do that. The apostle Paul healed a man. The individuals around him saw that healing. This is Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 records their reaction and Paul's reaction. Verse number 11 says, And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they rent, tore their clothes, ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you. The very preaching they're doing 
is to stop this. Paul would say to the men in Athens, Acts 17, 26, he has made one blood of all men from every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. All men are valuable. All men are worthy. Cain's question, the original one, Genesis chapter 4, am I my brother's keeper? The answer, yes. In fact, there is an event in the New Testament when the Lord has a conversation about this very matter. Look, if you will, in the book of Luke in chapter 10. Listen to this discussion that the Lord is having with someone who is interested, according to his question, in doing what God would desire. In verse number 25 of Luke chapter 10, the Bible says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read? How does it read to you? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, That's Jesus. He said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. That would be great to end the discussion, but it didn't end the discussion. Why not? Because verse 29 says, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is what leads into that great parable beginning in verse number 30 about a man who was traveling down the road and fell among thieves. And they got that man, and they, they, they accosted that man, and they left him half dead in the street. And a priest came by, looked upon him, and passed by. And a Levite came by, looked upon him, and passed by. And another man came by and saw him. And that man, according to the time and the culture and the circumstances, they should have been enemies. But when he saw him, he went and he helped him up. He ministered to him. He put him on his beast and he took him to a place of lodging and he paid for him and he talked to the attendant and he said, anything else he needs, put it on my charge. And he went away and he said, I'll come back and I'll check on him again. The end of that, Jesus says, now, who was neighbor to him? The man who sought to justify himself. He said, the one who showed mercy toward him, to which Jesus said, go your way and do the same. Consider that Paul is standing before a Roman official, and the things that's said about this man is that he was not a right-doing man. And Paul says to him, righteousness. Just a few verses later, the Bible will tell us he sent for Paul in part hoping to get a bribe. How can you be a righteous judge hoping to bribe your prisoner? And that's the sermon that day. Here's the point. It's not okay to mistreat a fellow human being. It's not okay 
to step over and walk by our neighbor who is hurting. Even if we disagree with them, we're to treat them righteously. Even if they do wrong, oh, we're not supposed to pretend the wrong didn't happen. We're not supposed to call it by another name. We're not acting as if it was right. The point is, you don't return evil for evil. Paul is in court on false charges. Paul was beaten in Philippi, arrested falsely, beaten. At midnight, you'll find him singing and praying. And whether or not the official, the jailer, actually did the beating, he's part of the dynamic as to why Paul was beaten. And when the earthquake happened, that same Paul said to him, don't harm yourself, because we're all here. And when that very man fell down at Paul's feet and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Then Paul taught him the gospel. In this meeting, one of them is a Christian, and one of them is not. Paul is presently living his sermon, and Felix needs to hear it. Paul first spoke about faith in Christ, and then he talked about righteousness. What's the second point? It's right after it. As he reasoned with him, discussing with him righteousness and temperance, or self-control. The two go hand in hand. You remember we talked about how it's okay to mistreat people according to the world, according to culture, according to what everybody does. It's okay, and at the exact same time, you can make allowances for that very bad behavior. Our greatest blessing seems to be our greatest challenge, and that is self-control. It matters what we do and say and how we act. It seems that God built self-control into the creation. Things are all named when we open up the Bible and start reading. Things are all named so we can know what. We are named so we can know who. Time is created so we can know when. Space is created so we can know where. In fact, by our creation, we can know who did it, what they did, when they did it, and where they did it. And that is exactly what we find in Scripture. Adam, did you eat of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? We know who did it. We know what was done. We know where it was done. It was Adam in the garden eating of the tree. God wants us to control ourselves. James spends an entire chapter on the controlling of the tongue. Who's going to do that? When are you going to do that? Right after I was lied on. Right after I was shouted at. Right after I was misrepresented. What am I going to do? I'm going to have to control my tongue. Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 6, the Bible says, let your speech be always with grace. Season with salt that it might impart grace to the hearers. I heard one preacher's explanation of this, and he said, salt makes you thirsty. I thought that's interesting. I suppose it does. Salt makes you thirsty. He said, yeah, and that's the point. When you're done speaking, people should want to hear it. 
they should thirst for it. Because your speech is with grace, seasoned with salt, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Who's going to control your tongue if not you? Who's going to control your thought? Philippians 4 and verse number 8, whatsoever things are good, pure, lovely, just, all of the, think on these things. Who's going to do that? Who's going to control your deeds? And unfortunately, people in the world seem to believe that I will control myself right after you make sure I don't have to. You do everything right and then I'll control me. But mess up if you want to. Because if you don't get my order out here, oh, it's going to be something. <laughs> I'm no longer going to control me. We're going to have a problem. That's not at all biblical. You know, one of these men is a Christian and one of them is not. Control, we must change ourselves. How do we do that? Look at Ephesians 4 and listen to Paul talk about it. We don't have time to read the entirety of the chapter and get into a lengthy discussion of Ephesians, but you should know the first three chapters of the book, he's already spelled out the justification part. And so now he's talking about the living part. And as a result of that living, Paul says, you have to change. And by the grace of God, having been saved, having been brought into a relationship with him, he says, you can't live like you once did. How did the change occur? Verse 17 down to verse 19, he says, you can't live like the other Gentiles because they don't think right. He says in verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance in them because of the hardness of their heart. Their thinking is not correct. And as a result of the wrong thinking in verse number 19, he says their living is incorrect. And he says they have become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. How do you do that? You think that first. It's the thinking that's the problem, and that's what moves one to live a particular way. How do I change that? Paul says you have to change your thinking. You need new information. This is why the gospel has to be heard. This is why the gospel has to be taught so that somebody can hear something new. Oh, there's another way to live. Yes. Oh, there's a way in which you can live that doesn't retaliate. Yes, just like Jesus. Well, tell me about Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Look at verse number 20. But you have not so learned Christ. You've not learned Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him, have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. You know where you can go learn about Jesus? Now, of course, you can learn about Jesus in the entire New Testament, but we have four books dedicated to the life and teaching of Jesus. And you can read the gospel and you can see Jesus in a variety of settings with a variety of people acting a variety of ways, very often wrongly toward him. And you can see his reaction. And you can hear his words, and you can watch him act. And then Jesus invites you, come learn of me, and then become like me. That's the aim. That's the point. This man is not there yet, which is why Paul began with faith in Jesus. And then he says, you have to treat other people right. And then he says, you have to control yourself. How do you do that? You take off the old man, you put on the new man. In fact, look at verse 22 and 23, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That word renewed is the word that means renovated. 
We like home renovations. We, we like to, as people say, gut the house. Well, that's right. What do you do with the old man? Gut him out. Get rid of the old man. And now, clean, swept, garnish. What do you do? Renovate the place. Put new things in. What's the new things? Jesus. And then how is that lived out? You just keep reading. Verse number 25 says, 24, he says, you renew the spirit of your mind, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside every falsehood, speak truth. And it just goes on and on from there about a righteous life. What's Paul talking about to Felix? Righteousness and self-control. Unfortunately, our world seems to be full of people who want to control everything but the one thing God put in their hands to control, self. The truth is we must control our passions. We must restrain our desires. We will determine our destinies. Self-control helps us to avoid the, the trap of blame. You practice self-control, you don't blame circumstances. You don't blame life. You don't blame them for your actions. You don't blame other people, even when they're bad people. God has never accepted blaming other people for our actions. In fact, it's the third chapter of the Bible. Adam blames Eve, and God says no. The proverb writer in wisdom says, a man that lacks self-control is like a city without walls. He will be attacked and overcome by his own passions and desires. Sometimes you read the passage, you might think that if you don't have a wall, then invaders will come in and destroy you. And while that's true, it won't be that you're destroyed from without by a lack of self-control. It will be from within. Your lack of self-control will destroy you. You have no walls of protection against you. You give in to your passions, which is what Paul says in Ephesians 4. They've given themselves over. That's what will happen. The point is, it's not okay to refuse to restrain or refuse to control yourself. It is not okay to make excuses for bad behavior. It is not okay to do wrong because people do you wrong. And one of the quickest trips, I mean the shortest, I've seen Teslas race Bugattis online and they talk about how quickly, listen, this is faster than that. It may very well be the shortest journey with the fastest travel. And that is the distance and time it takes for a person who has been done wrong to start doing wrong. Sometimes it's almost instantaneous. Sometimes the person who did the hitting's hand has not returned before the person who was hit hand starts moving. Sometimes the words seem to still be being heard in the air, the insult, before another one starts to be returned. And it seems to be justified and okay because of the order in which it occurred. You did it first, and that allows me. It would be difficult to find something more out of harmony with Jesus than that. 
Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, the apostle Paul talking to those elders, talked about Jesus, and he says, well, Acts chapter 10, as Peter says it, he went about doing good. In the midst of what? All the bad he received. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25, Peter says, that's why you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who did no sin. Who when he was threatened, he threatened not. When he was reviled, he committed himself to him that judges righteously. Paul talked to Felix about righteousness, how you treat your fellow man. And then he talked to him about self-control, how you master yourself by the grace and help of God through Jesus Christ. What's the third point? It's there at the end of verse 25 or right after it. He was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Why do people act the way they act in Numbers 1 and number 2? Why do they feel so free? They don't know number 3. You know, for a lot of people, what they've concluded is karma was sorted out. That's what they've concluded. I looked up the word karma. Here's the definition. The totality of a person's actions and conduct during successive incarnations regarded as casually influencing his or her destiny. Well, first of all, you'd have to believe in incarnations. You'd have to believe you're going to come back as something. Well, that's a huge problem, number one. But this is the idea that most people have. You know what goes around comes around. You know you better be careful. That's okay. They'll get theirs. All they'll get. It's karma. They'll get. No. No. A thousand times no. That's not what it is. What is it that's connected to how you treat your fellow man? What is it that's connected to your self-control? Judgment. That's what's connected judgment to come. That's not karma. That's God's justice. Judgment's coming. That's what he said to Felix. Judgment is coming, Felix. He wanted him to know, you're a judge. Yes, but you're going to be judged. He wanted him to know that. The God who created the world owns the world. The one who created the world is the judge of the world. The one who created the world is the only one who will end the world. And judgment's coming. That's why he began with Christ. Verse number 24, he spoke about faith in Christ. Why do you need that? Because Christ will be the judge. John 5 and verse 22, Jesus said the Father had committed all judgment to the Son. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31, Paul says he given assurance. He raised him. He's going to judge. How? By that man? Who's going to judge? The world? Jesus? John 12 and verse 48, Jesus said, He that rejected me and receiving not my words has one to judge him. The word I've spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10, For we must all appear. It's as if we've been summoned. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may give an account of things he's done in his body. To whom? To others and to self whether they be good or bad. What's the criteria? Are you in Christ? Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 11, the Bible says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From the presence of the earth, the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. To whom? Others and self. Righteousness and self-control. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Why faith in Jesus? That's the only way to get your name written in the book of life. What happens if your name isn't there? Friends, don't fool yourself into believing you're going to get there some other way. It's, you're not. Jesus said, I'm the way the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. A few facts you should know about judgment. It's eternal. Matthew 25 and verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Some unfortunately suggest that one of them is eternal and the other is not. It's not true. The eternal punishment is the same as the eternal life. They are the same. They're eternal. It's uncertain. When is it going to happen? Nobody knows. Matthew 25 and verse 24 and 36. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels nor the Son, but the Father only. When will it occur? Well, at least the resurrection is connected to it. John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is why it matters the way you live, because the way you live is going to be the way you die, and the way you die is going to be the way you're raised, and the way you're raised is going to determine how you're judged. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, the Bible tells us when we die, we go either to paradise or to torments. The Bible tells us there's a great gulf fixed between the two. The Bible tells us that you cannot change places from one to the other. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that you are conscious and awake and alert in there while you're either suffering or being comforted. Paul's powerful sermon. You know, when we preach sermons, what we would desire is for everybody to respond to them in the way that they need to respond. That is, if you have not obeyed the gospel, our desire as preachers of the gospel would be lovely for you to come to Jesus today and develop your faith in him. On the other hand, if a child of God has been living in a way that's not pleasing to him, they've fallen away, they need to be restored, oh, it would be wonderful if they came back to Jesus. And while that's our desire, I do need you to understand, that's a desire. That's not the point of preaching, though. The point of preaching is understanding. That is, communicating God's Word in all of those ways, scripturally, contextually, and appropriately, and timely, and personally, and pointedly, so that a person who hears it can come with that information to a place of decision-making. And that's exactly what Paul did. His sermon was so powerful because that was the position that Felix was in. In fact, read the rest of verse 25 and note what it says. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, the Bible says Felix became frightened. King James may say trembled. He was afraid. Afraid of what? You know, maybe he knew 
he had not been acting righteously. Maybe he knew he had not exercised any self-restraint and control over his passions and desires. And maybe when he heard about the judgment to come, the Bible says he trembled. That tells me it was understood. It tells me the sermon was effective. It tells me it garnered a powerful reaction. And sometimes in audience such as this and others, that's exactly what happens. Somebody hears it and they come to a point of crisis and a decision needs to be made. You know, fear could be a good thing because if that's the place, oh, that one would act on it. You know, sadly, what happens next is what unfortunately all too often happens and we would beg you don't let it happen this morning. What happened next? After he became frightened, Felix said, go away. Go away. Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Felix delayed. How often does that happen? People say, go away. Don't preach to me, preacher. Go away. They'll make the same mistake. Felix made, when I find a more convenient day, when I find time, you know, it's interesting in Scripture, that time is always now. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. When you come to that place, act on it now. Don't be like Felix. He said to Paul, I'll send for you. Felix needed to have faith in Christ he needed to obey the gospel. What about you? What if you were Paul's audience? The reality is you were, because you just heard his sermon. You just heard Paul speak about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. That was the sermon. And if you have not come to faith in Jesus, this is your time. It's not okay that the world mistreats each other. That's not okay. Please don't fall into that trap. Paul spoke about righteousness. It matters what we do to other human beings. Please, don't put a name, a physical description, characteristic type, anything on that. Human beings, it matters. And God demands righteousness. Self-control matters. It matters what I do with my tongue. It matters what you do with yours. It matters that we leave this building this morning without insulting each other. It matters that we make it out of here without harming somebody else and being accountable for my work. That matters to God. Self-control matters. The reason they both matter is because judgment's coming. And what will be used? The very Word of God that teaches righteousness and self-control. Maybe you've heard me use the expression, the divine triangle. And I've tried to be as quickly as I could behind that phrase to say, that's not in the Bible. The Bible never says that expression. It's mine. But I do want you to know that what I'm trying to describe by it is absolutely in the Bible. In fact, it's Paul's sermon. You know what righteousness is? It's outward. It's you looking at your fellow man, looking outside of yourself and asking, 
Did I seek his highest good? Did I practice Matthew 7, 12? It matters to God how we treat other people. But you know what self-control is? It's inward. Did I seek to master myself? Did I take Jesus, set him on my heart, and make him my example, and then live for him myself? If nobody else in the world did, did I do it? My tongue, my thoughts, my deeds, it matters to God that I control myself. And then thirdly, judgment to come is upward. God is the creator of heaven and earth, and I'm accountable to him. God is the absolute good, and he is the standard. And one day, I will stand before him, and I will bow, and I will confess, Romans 14, 11. And what will be the criteria? The one that's from cover to cover. What do you find at the giving of the law? Exodus 20, God, self, and others. No other gods. You keep the Sabbath and you don't covet your neighbors. What do you find in the judgment, Matthew 25, 31 to 46? God, self, others. I was hungry, you gave me no. When you did this to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. When you didn't do this to the least of my, it's the cover to cover because it's our very existence. Paul's great sermon, righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Sadly for Felix, he sent Paul away. Question this morning is, what will you do? Will you come to Jesus in faith if that's your need? And if you have come and obeyed the gospel, will you be like Jesus and live righteously? self-controlled, and be ready for judgment to come. Not a Christian believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the gospel. Allow that belief to move you to change your mind. Ephesians 4, 20, that's what we read. Learn Christ. Believe the gospel. Learn him and to change your heart and your mind. Take off the old man. Be renewed. Spirit of your mind. And then bury the old man in baptism. Romans 6, 3 through 5. Put him to death at last and bury him so you can walk in newness of life. Friends, if you've never done that, we implore you this morning to do just that. And if you are his child, let's wake up every day showing the world why this life is a life of righteousness, self-control. Because we know what they don't. Judgment's coming. We can help you in any way this morning. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.